Hello and welcome to the Paleo Baby Podcast. I am Julie Kelly and today I am joined by Megan Singshuri. Megan is a PhD candidate at UC Davis and she is a member of, <laughs> I love the name of this, the Milk Group that's been decoding mother's milk for clues to lasting health for the past decade. She's currently using this basic science information to develop effective clinical interventions. That is the most vague introduction that I could possibly give to the incredible work that you're doing. <laughs> Welcome, Megan. Thanks for being with me. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. <laughs> so tell people, what is the milk group? What are you guys doing up there at Davis with milk? What kind of milk are you using? <laughs> so it's a vegan introduction for a reason, and that's because the work that we're doing at UC Davis is so broad. We're looking at milk, both human milk and other species milk, although our focus is, is mainly on human milk and bovine milk at the moment from a lot of different perspectives. So we have a lot of different scientists with a lot of different backgrounds, all interested in the components of milk and really how they contribute not only to infant health, um, but how components can be potentially utilized as therapeutics uh, for other populations as well. So we have everyone participating from analytical chemists who are dissecting milk apart and trying to really nail down the structural components of all the different molecules that are present in milk, to microbiologists who are interested in the microbial content of milk, and beyond that, how the components of milk influence the microbiota of both the infant gastrointestinal tract as well as just the general population consuming dairy products to, you know, gut physiologists who are interested in how milk components affect the functioning of the gut to immunologists who are interested in how milk components shape the development of the immune system. And we even collaborate with anthropologists who are interested in more some of the social aspects of milk as well as comparisons of milk between primate species and other mammalian species to give us clues into development of the young of various um, mammalian species. So really, it's a very broad field. We have a lot of people looking at this from a lot of different directions, and now even bringing in clinicians who are interested in the therapeutic potential of different types of milk and milk components. So really, we're taking a very deep look into this, and what we found is just just unbelievable things that we never knew about, about milk and how dynamic it is. So it's a really exciting time to be in this field. And I'm very excited to be just a small part of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds it sounds incredible. Um, we talked briefly before we started recording about the, the work that I did in my grad program. And it sounds a little similar, but we were very focused on, you know, more from a, a dairy science perspective. So we were only looking at bovine milk and also looking at, at horse's milk. So I did a little bit of work with mare's milk as well. But you're just taking kind of this multidisciplinary approach looking at because it's I think the whole thing of what you just said is that it's one substance but from this one substance we can have all of these interdisciplinary views and all these different pathways of, of importance and I think that that just kind of harkens to the importance of this <laughs> of this substance and then and um, exactly. all life so I think of one of the main takeaways should just be wow um, milk is is incredible <laughs> I really love, you know, when I read through the, some of the work that you guys were doing, and one thing that popped out at me was just this idea of a milk-oriented microbiota. But before we jump into that specifically, can you just briefly define, in the terms of your work and in general for people, what is a microbiota when we're talking about this stuff? What do you really mean? Right. So microbiota, there's lots of different microbiota, um, and they can inhabit lots of different niches, obviously. We're Today, you're going to focus talking on the gut microbiota, but you also have microbiota of your skin, uh, even microbiota of your lungs, of any surface of your body, really, that's exposed 
uh, to the outside environment can have a microbiota. And it's generally an ecosystem. So lots of different organisms that are all dependent on each other in even a food network and they interact with each other and with the host. And it includes a lot of different microorganisms. People generally talk about the bacteria that are present in the gut and on the skin, but it also includes other microorganisms such as viruses, fungus, and any really single-celled organism. So microbiota is a broad term for any sort of microbial ecosystem. And today we'll be mostly focusing on those microbes that are present in the gut and interact with the host in that location. Okay. And when we talk about the milk-oriented microbiota, are we talking about the interaction of milk in the gut or the interaction of milk in the infant? Or does that, is there a spe- like a different level of specificity needed there? All right. So we're talking about how the milk, milk components influence the colonization mainly of the infant gastrointestinal tract. Obviously, this can also be applied to anyone consuming milk products, but when we're talking about the human milk-oriented microbiota, then really we're focusing on the breastfed infant. Interesting. Okay. Right. So where does this kind of take root? What are you really hoping to get out of this more than anything? I mean, like when you say that you're kind of turning your attention to like use the basic science to develop effective like clinical interventions, for example, where do we see this coming out of the lab and into real life over, you know, with the work that you're doing, what parts of it do you think are probably the most pressing that, <laughs> to get out of the lab? Like which ones do you see to really affecting people kind of currently, or you want to help people with sooner rather than later? Right. So as everyone probably knows, especially your listeners, that the microbiota and specifically the gut microbiota has now been implicated in multiple aspects of health, anything from metabolic syndrome to diabetes to obesity to cancers. Um, it's just, it really plays a huge role in our general well-being and overall health. And so we need to learn more about the microbiota in general, how the microbiota functions, how different species within the microbiota interact with each other and with the host. And more specifically, we need to understand critical periods of development. So now there's this idea of the developmental origins of of health and disease and really understanding that there's critical periods and with respect to colonization of the gut where we can really influence how the gut is colonized. And that can set an individual up for a lifetime of health or predispose them to disease in the future. So we really need to focus on one the development of the microbiota, so early colonization of the gut, and then how we can really effectively modulate the microbiota later in life. And it seems to actually be harder to do than we think. So you see commercials now for probiotic capsules and stuff that you can take orally, and it seems to partially improve certain things like digestive function, but you're not really changing the microbiota very much when you take probiotics. So generally, those bacteria aren't able to colonize. Their beneficial effects are transient as they pass through the gastrointestinal tract. They may produce beneficial byproducts and improve gut health transiently, uh, but they don't colonize. They don't stick around. And so we really need to f- figure out how to really modulate the microbiota and really what the most important way to modulate the microbiota. So currently we're trying to figure out which species, which taxa 
seem to be beneficial and are important for health. But we can get really bogged down in the details of that because there are hundreds of different species that are present there. No two people have the same species. And so trying to describe an optimal, so to speak, bacterial composition in the gut really isn't going to get us anywhere. So really now we're trying to focus on functional aspects of the microbiota. So people don't have the same taxa or types of bacteria present in their gut, but they generally have the same functions of bacteria. So if we can figure out ways to functionally profile the microbiota of people and figure out what functions the microbiota might be lacking, then we can sort of start to personalized treatments. And where human milk comes in with that is human milk does have the ability to modulate the microbiota, especially in early life. There's a lot of different factors in there that play many different roles. Some factors are prebiotics, meaning that they're food for bacteria. So there are sugars that are present in milk that are only metabolized by bacteria and not by the infant. There's also a lot of immune factors in there that can not only prevent colonization of pathogenic bacteria, but actually promote colonization of beneficial bacteria. So we can kind of use milk as a tool to kind of explore the microbiota and how it modulates the bacteria. And we can kind of assume that however milk is modulating the microbiota, that's going to be towards a more beneficial composition, so to speak. So we can kind of use milk not only to investigate normal development of the microbiota, but also to generate potential therapeutics for people who might have problems with their microbiota also. So really it can be therapeutic for numerous different diseases, really anything that's linked to the microbiota. And so we're just starting to apply that now for certain populations. So Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of potential there. (laughs) What are the main, like the main components of the milk that you're focused on in terms of uh, working directly or even modulating the bacteria? Is it specifically the oligosaccharides that I read about in some of your work? Is that what you're primarily focused on? Primarily, yes, primarily the oligosaccharides as well as the immune factors. Those are the two that I'm particularly interested in Mm -hmm. because I am interested in not only the microbiota, but how the microbiota interacts with the host. And that is a lot of that communication is through the immune system. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in the immune components and there's a lot of them, immunoglobulins, lactoferrin is a major milk protein that's responsible for shaping the microbiota. Mm -hmm. It has bactericidal activity, so it can kill potential pathogens, but it's also been shown to actually modulate the immune system. So it can be a transcription factor for certain cytokines in the gut. Mm -hmm. And really, it's really interesting how dual roles a lot of these components can take. They can not only serve as prebiotics, but have other bioactive functions also. So kind of exploring the different roles of these components just adds another layer (laughs) Mm -hmm. of depth to the research. And the oligosaccharides are, are really interesting just because they're so complex and we just started to really figure out what their structures are and then figuring out how the microbiota sort of interacts with those structures because there's different linkages between sugars that can only be broken down by certain bacteria. And so you can actually screen bacteria to see if they are able to produce enzymes that might be able to break down those sugars. So there's this whole interplay that we can kind of explore. And so, yes, my focus has been on the the oligosaccharides and the immune factors and their therapeutic potential. I think one of the biggest and most interesting things that I took from that was that what you guys have found and what the research is showing is that 
these milk components, it's not a direct, you know, milk component to conferring benefit to the, you know, direct nutritional support to the infant. And it's actually providing nutritional support to the beneficial bacteria in the gut, or even providing information to the gut to what to lay down mm -hmm. and what to avoid. All of that, and all those also, all the immune factors as well. And that to me seems is like just bunch of things jump out at me when I think about it that way, because then it seems like this system where it's almost just like a lock and key. So it seems like this system, this milk system, because I don't think it, you know, it's not just a substance, it's a system is very exactly. specific to the microbiota, to the gut, to the needs of its intended recipient, right? So Exactly. I yeah, guess. we like to say that mom isn't actually breastfeeding to feed one child. She's actually breastfeeding to feed one trillion. So yeah. it's also the bacteria in the gut that she's actually evolved this, this whole system to feed them. And you're right, it is a very lock and key, so to speak, sort of mechanism where these all these things interacting with each other. And the health of the gut is another big thing. So the microbiota can influence the health of the gut. But certain factors in milk can actually directly influence the development of the gastrointestinal tract. And they've shown in some animal studies that animals that are artificially reared on formulas, whatever the formula is made of, is that they're not drinking their own mother's milk, then they basically have delayed development of their gastrointestinal tract. And I'm of the, of the mindset that the gut is sort of the root of health, right? Mm -hmm. Because you intake all of your food, absorb all of your nutrients through the gut. Obviously, you have the microbiota is housed in the gut. 70% of your immune system is housed in the gut. So if something is going wrong in the gut, then you are not healthy overall. And so really the fact that milk has such an influence on the development of the gut at such an early age, that could really predispose you to either have health of the gut and overall body systems throughout your life, or you could always be struggling with with different problems in your gut that can then go out into other systems of your body, especially this new, this idea of the leaky gut, which has gotten a lot of uh, press lately. But now we're learning more about the interactions between the microbiota and the gut barrier and the immune system. So that's going to play a role in really <laughs> every system in your body. If, yeah. if your gut's leaky, the, then... The more we know, the less we know. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I just think I get asked all the time. I mean, I guess I think one of the biggest questions I get asked is so and so, for whatever reason, can't breastfeed. And, and first, I always try to address the can't breastfeed piece and, and help them find their way back to mm -hmm. breastfeeding. But I've also received questions from people who they're adopting a child, they're adopting an infant, and they are right. really at a loss for the best substitute for breast milk. And recently, mm -hmm. I've just been really vocal about pushing people to try to find a milk bank or donor milk if they can. Because I mean, I really right. just I feel like and you know, I'd love to hear your, your insight onto this, but there is no substitute. <laughs> there is no, it's true. I mean, really, mm. truly, if you're asking me specifically about what's the best possible start for this baby, if they can't have direct breast milk from their mother, then wouldn't the be next possible best solution would be breast milk from another mother? 
Right. Yeah. So that's a very important question because it is a big problem, especially with the lack of support generally for breastfeeding. The fact that moms nowadays don't generally learn how to breastfeed from their mothers like we used to do, that wisdom was sort of passed on from generation to generation. And I feel like it's sort of gotten lost now. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we don't have a lot of lactation consultants and we don't have nurses and doctors in delivery units who know how to really promote breastfeeding. And, and so it is a challenge, and, and a lot of times families uh, have a hard time being supportive because it can be burdensome to breastfeed, especially after six months. Um, it might be, it seems easier just to mix up a bottle. And then, of course, there are women who just can't produce for whatever reason, mm-hmm. and I think that needs to be a really big area of research, mm-hmm. figuring out exactly why moms can't produce. But in regard to substitutes, like we said, there really isn't anything that can really fully substitute for breast milk. So I would say that obviously I think donor milk is probably the next best bet. It's obviously not going to be personalized for the baby mm-hmm. like the breast milk from mom is. And that's a really interesting area of research too. The fact that immune components mm-hmm. that are in mother's milk are specific for the pathogens in her environment. And so it's sort of a direct immune transfer <laughs> between mm-hmm. the mom and the baby that the other moms might not have those appropriate factors. And that's just sort of the tip of the iceberg. But I would say that's probably the next best bet just because it, it'll, it'll still have all the good components and be dynamic and change throughout lactation. So that's one important thing to consider is that milk changes over lactation. So if you are going to use donor milk, you should try at least to get donor milk that is matched to the age of your baby. So because it changes, you need, you know, transition milk, which is going to be a little bit higher in immune factors and, and lactose in the first couple days after birth. And then it transitions to mature milk. And even over the first year, it continues to change. So trying to match the age of the baby with the age of the stage of lactation is important. And another factor to consider is pasteurization because all donor milk now has to be pasteurized because there are viruses and bacteria that are transferred in the milk and those can be pathogenic. Cytomegalovirus has been shown to be transferred via breast milk. I believe HIV as well. So they need to not only be pasteurized but screened for a lot of these things. And we don't really know overall the effect of pasteurization on milk. Um, I have seen some studies that show reduced levels of certain vitamins, but really we haven't studied right. it enough to know. But again, that's going to be your best bet. After that, I would say um, there are some some organizations that promote different homemade milks, mm-hmm. and they're often made from from mammalian milk, like raw mammalian milk, sometimes bovine, but I've seen a lot more uh, goat milk mm-hmm. and things like that. They tend to be less allergenic, although I don't really know if it's due to sort of the inherent properties of the proteins in those milks or whether it's the heat treatment. Um, there has been some research showing that actually the heat treatment of the milk can make it more allergenic. Mm-hmm. So using raw milk from other species and then supplementing them with different things because just the milk itself usually is more dilute from other species and you have to actually add more nutritional components. So I believe the Weston A. Price Foundation actually has on their website different formulas for milk. And that I would think would be a better alternative to buying a store-bought formula because really those are, (laughs) they're so highly processed and the fats aren't right. The sugars aren't right. There's no fiber Mm -hmm. in formula generally. 
I mean, you might be able to buy formulas now that have different fibers added, but they're nowhere as complex as the fibers that are present in human milk. So they don't selectively promote the growth of bacteria as well as human milk does. Mm -hmm. So it can cause gassiness and upset stomachs for some babies. And it's lacking all the immune components and it's really high in lactose. And they use generally really long chain polyunsaturated plant oils. Mm. which are a completely different composition than the milk, than are the fats that are present in human milk and are really hard for babies to digest and absorb. So it does cause digestional problems in some of those infants. So I would definitely say that homemade formulas are going to be more a better option, especially mm. if you don't have access to donor milk tanks. I know they're not very it's so prevalent around the country, depending on where right. you live. Exactly. <laughs> it might be hard to find. Um, I think you hit the nail on the head and that's exactly the recommendation that I always make in that order. You just, (laughs) really there is, there is no replacement. And it's so frustrating because I think a lot of women end up feeling attacked or whatever demeaned because you're, we're, I'm saying, oh, there, there is no replacement, but that's not what it is. And it's, I, you know, I, I fully understand that there's lack of lactation support, there's lack of lactation education, and there's also lots of extraneous circumstances in our modern world that demand that people can't breastfeed. And so I understand all that, mm-hmm. I think. Um, but I think it's important that we never lose sight of the importance of breast milk, because until people kind of come up and say there is no replacement, there is no second best, we have to find ways right. to get all babies the breast milk that they deserve, then there's never going to be this kind of call to action to really get the support that's needed, get the research that's needed, get the resources that are needed to promote breastfeeding for all babies. So I think that it's important exactly. to have that conversation, especially with someone like yourself, that you know, the composition, you know what it looks like, you can easily look at right. the breakdown of something and say this just if you're asking me if this equates, it doesn't, right, doesn't right. This. And I think that's important to point out. Yeah, and too often, it's just really easily, oh, you can't breastfeed or oh, you think it'll take too much time mm-hmm. over here formula, like it's right. just sort of very routinely like, oh, you can't breastfeed formula. Yeah. And that is that it might be really necessary for some people. But I think if we increase awareness about how important breastfeeding is for a lifetime of health, and you might not even necessarily see those outcomes until later on in the baby's life, just getting the knowledge out there is going to be important so that someone can't just say to you, oh, yeah. well, just just use formula. It's not right. that big of a deal. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it has, it Obviously, we don't want to guilt mothers who, who really are struggling and having a hard time and have right. tried every option and just can't do it. But yeah. I think too often moms too easily make that decision without having all the information. Yeah, no, it's important. It's important to, that they just know that there's other options out there. On the flip side of that, I also I think it's kind of ironic that, you know, my background is in dairy science, but I'm constantly telling people to get off dairy. <laughs> what about should we is it a good idea to supplement with and I'm not talking specifically with infants but I am referring to to kids and to to adults as well is Mm -hmm. it a good idea that we're supplementing or consuming the milk of other animals right and I've actually gone back and forth on that a lot personally because before I started this research I actually was dairy free for a while and that really helped a lot of digestional problems that I was having And so I was dairy-free for probably three years before I started trying to reintroduce it just because, well, mainly because I'm working in the field and I've learned of all these benefits of dairy products. And I think there's two different aspects to that. One is that certain people seem to be more sensitive to dairy than other people. Mm -hmm. 
So I think it really depends on the individual and how the individual responds to dairy. And it could have something to do with ancestral history, whether for how long your ancestors have been consuming dairy for. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is processing. So you can buy organic whole fat dairy at the store, but the processing of that is just so much. (laughs) And we don't really know what the consequences of that are. And like I said before, there's evidence to suggest that even mild processing of dairy products, because it's such a fragile, fragile fluid, there's so many microstructures in there, like the milk fat globule Mm -hmm. is just this very delicate structure of fats and proteins. And it just delivers nutrition so eloquently. And when we disrupt that, we don't know what the effects of that are. Mm -hmm. So even homogenizing could potentially, so mixing together all the components could be detrimental and might cause problems with your ability to process, digest, have immune reactions to those components. So I think if people are going to try to consume dairy for the beneficial properties, you really want to go with raw dairy, organic from a farm that you've gone to and you've mm-hmm. seen the cows out in the field, drink, eating the grass, and they don't process it at all. And you eat the fat along with it because you need all the components together. Right. And if you try and eat dairy that way and you're still having problems with it, then you might just be an individual that doesn't respond well. Mm-hmm. So I definitely think it's on an individual basis and you really have to take the source and processing of those dairy mm-hmm. foods into account also. I tend to only really be able to eat fermented dairy. Mm-hmm. So I get, me and my husband have a herd share, and we get milk directly from the farm, and it's all grass-fed, whole fat, and I still have to ferment it. So I drink kefir. I can't drink just regular milk. And I don't even exactly know why yeah. <laughs> why that is. If it might be the sugar in there that I'm no longer tolerant to, that they metabolize, that could maybe be the problem. So yeah, I think it's a very individual prescription and you just kind of have to do self-experimentation. Mm-hmm. Try different types of dairy, see how they make you feel, be very observant of both your digestion and your skin. Skin is actually a really good reflection of your gut function. Mm-hmm. So if you eat something and it causes you to break out, have a rash, then you probably shouldn't be eating it. Of of course, if it causes gas, discomfort, constipation, diarrhea, anything that's not transient. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when you introduce those foods, when you haven't been eating them for a while, then you can get some microbial activity because it's just not used to having those components there. But if it doesn't go away, then you might want to consider removing it again. So yeah, yeah, I think a very individual basis for for dairy. What about the hormonal and the immune components of milk, though? I mean, I guess I'm just wondering, are we going to find out in a 15, 20 years that is nobody going to be consuming the milk of another animal because we find out that it has these more profound effects on our immune system and that kind of, you know, back to that kind of lock and key mechanism of it's really just not that similar. Right. They're specific for a reason. Our mothers make milk and cows make milk for their young. And whenever I look at it, it's also, it has hormone implications as well. So whenever I look at women with acne and they've got, you know, when they've got, you know, any kind of respiratory issues when you know, they wake up really congested and they've got acne and they've got it and I get them off dairy and all of a sudden they realize that it mm-hmm. has a you know, much bigger effect on them. And they, they even can track it to their cycles and being, you know, more greatly affected by dairy at different times of the month. So I guess right. I, I'm just concerned, I guess, to say the least about about the immune, you know, the immune factors in, in other mammals. Yes. As well. 
Yes, that's a very good point and a good question. And I definitely think something that needs more research, all of this does really, we're we're kind of working on very sparse data to begin with. And that is true. I mean, there's insulin, there's other types of hormones that are in milk, and that could definitely be causing disruption of our own endocrine systems. Mm -hmm. And I believe there was one hypothesis, I, I don't know too much about it, but actually that mounting an immune response to bovine insulin that's in cow milk might cause the autoimmune reaction responsible for type 1 diabetes. Mm. And I don't know how far that got. I know it was in animal research for a while. Um, I haven't followed that lately, so I'm not sure if that's been proven further or disproven. But that's definitely a consideration. I mean, we definitely didn't evolve probably drinking other animals' milk until we started really living more intimately with animals, which wasn't until, you know, agriculture. So it hasn't been that long really that we've been able to consume the milk of other species. And there's a reason that our lactase genes, some of us shut down after infancy because we're not supposed to be consuming milk anymore. Mm-hmm. So that definitely is a concern. And I definitely think there needs to be more research into that because sometimes you can drink milk and not have an obvious reaction to it, mm-hmm. but then maybe it's disrupting your hormones and you're not really aware. So I can't really provide a specific answer to that other than I think we need more research for it and there's definitely the possibility that that could be true. Mm-hmm. And I know science infections have been linked a lot with dairy consumption. And again, it could be partially the processing also that could be responsible for these effects. I mean, as an adult, I feel like you're more protected from some of those factors and you might be more susceptible depending on your gut health. So if you're an individual who has gut problems, has a leaky gut, for example, that might allow more of these hormones to kind of enter into the systemic circulation and have effects. Whereas if your gut is healthy and closed and you're really able to break down all those components of milk, even the hormones, you might just be able to break them down if you have a healthy gut and functioning digestive system, and then they're not going to bother you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I can't really, <laughs> I mean, there's even, all these possibilities. Yeah, I mean, even yeah. though like looking at infants in this, just this kind of dance between breast milk and their healthy gut, breast milk seems important and necessary at the best of times. And then you add any kind of dysregulation of that system, dysregulation of that recipient. So the infant say they have any kind of issue, then breast milk just mm-hmm. seems to become increasingly exponentially more important with any disruption in that system. And it's kind of the same even for adults. The more screwed up your gut is, the more important it is to tend to making sure that right. that's right before you can have any expectation for long-term health. In that kind of vein, what are there certain types of disorders, other types of kind of dysregulations of kind of the gut axis, you know, the gut-brain axis, and then there's just, you know, the gut in and of itself. Are there certain um, areas where you guys are looking at the application of milk components to solve some of those issues so any kind of disorders or dysbioses that you're using specifically mm-hmm. treat. Yes. Yeah, so in terms of clinical implications, we of course start with any sort of gut dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So we're really interested in not only milk components, but the microbes that are associated with those milk components. So bifidobacteria is what you're going to hear a lot when you talk about the milk-oriented microbiota. Bifidobacteria are selectively promoted by milk components. So we're not only looking into actually utilizing components of milk, but also the bacteria that tend to be promoted by those milk components as therapeutics. 
focusing a lot on the gut. So at UC Davis, we've been really interested in the health of preterm infants Mm -hmm. because they're born sort of unadapted to the outside world in general. So they're not even really fit to be consuming mother's milk because they're so immature that their digestive systems aren't even prepared to handle to handle something as digestible and as protective as human milk. So they're very susceptible to gastrointestinal dysfunction. And one of the most lethal disorders that they have in their gut is necrotizing intercolitis. It's the number one killer of preterm infants who survive the first two weeks in the NICU. And a lot of those mothers also can't produce enough milk because they're just not at that stage in their their gestation to be producing milk. And even if they can, the nutritional needs of the infant, because it's supposed to be in utero and is now ex utero, the nutritional needs don't match up. So they still have to be supplemented with formula, especially protein. And so we're really interested in using milk components to try and protect preterm infants. So we've been doing studies looking at uh, bifidobacteria supplementation because a lot of preterm infants are also born by cesarean section. Mm -hmm. And so they don't get the vaginal flora that they should get that colonizes the gut. They're colonized by hospital flora, which is partially what makes them susceptible to necrotizing intercolitis. So trying to supplement them with probiotics has been one thing that we're looking at in clinical trials. And then my particular research is in the area of the gut-brain axis, like you mentioned. So I'm actually interested in the gastrointestinal health of children with autism. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is sort of an underappreciated dimension of autism spectrum disorders. You know, most people are familiar with the neurologic dysfunction, that they suffer from with communication, social interaction, kind of a good way to think of it is they're just in their own world. They don't really interact the outside world very well. And that can be really heartbreaking for parents, especially. So that's very well recognized. But what's not is that a lot of these kids also suffer really bad gastrointestinal dysfunction. And there's a lot of risk factors for autism that seem to connect with the gut. For one thing, early antibiotic exposure. So I've talked to a lot of parents of kids with autism, and a lot of them have received over six, eight, ten rounds of antibiotics before they're a year and a half. So there could be sort of an inherent maybe immune deficit that they have that predisposes them to infection, and then they have they get they receive antibiotics, so it could be an immune thing, or it could actually be directly disruption of the microbiota. That could be causing not only their gastrointestinal symptoms, but potentially behavioral problems as well. And they've actually shown in some studies that administering specific antibiotics that are targeted to the gut, so they're not absorbed, they're just their action is in the gut. And when they receive those antibiotics, it actually reverses some of their autistic symptoms temporarily until the antibiotic is not administered anymore and then the symptoms come back. Mm-hmm. Non-intake or suboptimal breastfeeding practices is also a risk factor for autism. So non-intake of colostrum and short duration of breastfeeding are risk factors. So I'm very interested in how the gut and the gut microbiota interact and influence neurodevelopment, especially with all this new information we're gaining about how the microbiota actually influences the nervous system, the fact that they can actually produce neurotransmitters directly, mm-hmm. and the fact that they produce other byproducts, such as short-chain fatty acids, that can actually cross through the gut into the circulation and even through the blood-brain barrier to influence neurotransmitter production in the brain. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest 
that there is a bi-directional communication between the gut and the brain, and microbiota definitely play a role in that, whether it's a consequence of the disorder, or whether they have central nervous system dysfunction that leads to dysbiotic bacteria, or whether the reverse is true, we don't know. We don't really know where the cause lies. So one of the first steps is trying to maybe augment the microbiota and see if that has an effect on not only gastrointestinal symptoms, but behavior as well. So that's sort of what we're exploring now to see if what kind of a connection there is there. That's such important work. I mean, all of this is obviously crucially and vitally important to, you know, to a lot of areas, but I think you have to start somewhere. You have to pick something and just start plugging away, right? Because you can't just Yes, exactly. <laughs> There's kind of also a third party here, and this is something that, you know, we see a lot, and we're just, I think, also just kind of starting to scratch the surface and understand kind of this effect of, of environmental factors as well. So the things that affect us, that we're exposed to on a daily basis. And I hate using the word chemicals and toxins because people think that that means that I don't understand what chemicals and toxins are, but trust me, I do. I understand <laughs> that they have their benefits and they have their place, but we're just exposed to so many of them on a daily basis now. And I think there's no way to weed out what's having the effects that they're having. But I'm just wondering in this kind of context of the microbiota and more specifically this mother's milk to child and the infant back microbiota, if this is a third party that's part of this conversation that's causing damage, causing effects. And are we going to see, mm -hmm. or do you think we're going to see this play out in the research as well? Are people going to look at this and see if milk is correcting or capable of correcting for some of the damage of some of these environmental factors as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really, really great question, a great point. And I've been starting to look into that a little bit more recently. And I've actually heard that as an argument for formula actually being safer than breast milk because a lot of the chemicals that we're exposed to in our daily lives that we're not even aware of do get into the breast milk right. and can be at high levels. And although we still don't have enough research to know necessarily how high is high enough to cause problems in people, just the fact that they're present at detectable levels in women who are exposed, things like BPA, that's in plastics, things like phthalates and, and pretty much anything really. Yeah. They're in carpets, couches, your shampoo, your conditioner, any pro personal care product that you use, lotion, hairspray. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those chemicals are put in from the industry without being tested. So in the United States, where chemicals are not required to be tested for safety before they're put into the environment, you, it's actually reversed where you have to prove once they're in the environment that they're having some sort of... Mm -hmm. <laughs> some sort of detrimental effect on health, you have to prove that before they'll withdraw them from the product, which is yeah. not the best way Asinine. to do things. <laughs> and uh, we have been testing their breast milk a lot more lately because there is this concern and they do find these levels in breast milk. And now, you know, switching and even storing breast milk, storing it mm -hmm. in glass containers rather than then plastic, plastic bottles has been a big movement lately. But I definitely think there are implications for that. Do I think that formula is safer because of that? No, okay. <laughs> because formula is processed the same way that other foods are. And it's very likely that those chemicals are also found in formula. They're just not right. required to test for them or put it on the label or anything. So there is definitely a concern for that. And I think minimizing your exposure as much as you can um, to those things while you're breastfeeding would be 
kind of take your health into your own hands. Mm -hmm. Try and use as much glass containers for things as you can. Don't put in new carpet. Don't Mm -hmm. paint generally during that time. There's no way, obviously, to completely remove all those chemicals from your environment. But there are certain steps that you can take to try and prevent that. Yeah, but I, I mean, agree. Like that's a very like, important area. You know, reviewing your personal care products and trying to mm-hmm. mitigate that is the best that you can. There's lots of products now that are available on the market that don't contain the ones that we know to cause problems. So there's definitely things that you can do. You shouldn't feel hopeless in that regard. But I think it's important to point out that, you know, there's all this. We, my husband and I get frustrated a lot because we feel like all, there's these little microcosms of all these conversations that are going on about what's causing this problem, that problem, the other problem. And everybody thinks they have this answer. But I think there's this underlying issue, this kind of silent conversation that's going on about our environmental toxicity and, and all the other things. And there's no way to know at what point that that is a greater threat than not having exactly. a probiotic or not having a this, that, or the other thing. So Exactly. There's so many problems. We don't know where to start or what's the biggest <laughs> contributing factor. Yeah. And I know a lot that we are starting that research at Davis. So Herba Hertz-Pisiota is a professor there, and she's interested in the toxicology of of autism, actually, and how um, different environmental toxins might be contributing to um, the onset of autism. So Mm -hmm. we're starting there, and she's very interested also in in breast milk, and I think they're just now starting to analyze um, the breast milk hormones with autism to see if there's any difference, if maybe they do have higher toxin levels in that breast milk than mm-hmm. for other babies. Um, but that research is, again, in its infancy, and right. we certainly don't have any answers yet. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's very fascinating. Well, it's very important work that you're doing, and, and I think it's great that you're doing it. So keep it up. We'll have to check back in again and see where you get in the next couple of years and what you learn. I'm fascinated by it. It wasn't for me to keep going in the lab, but I'm glad that other people are <laughs> right. keeping going with it. Cause well, it's, it's difficult. It is difficult to, <laughs> for this research because not everyone thinks it's important, and it's yeah. really hard hard actually nowadays to to convince people that this research should be funded so yes I'll need all the help I can get (laughs) well that's great well well, thank you so much Megan it's been a really interesting conversation and I hope everyone listening enjoyed it if people want to learn more about what you're doing Megan or read some of your research where can they find out more about you yes absolutely please feel free to email me my email address is m for Megan sanctuary at ucdavis.edu. And I'm currently also in the process of starting up a consulting business. So if anyone's interested in either personal consultations or businesses, companies that are interested in research consulting of any type, you can feel free to contact me as well. And yeah, I'm available at any time and hopefully I'll have a website soon that I can direct people to as well. Um, But that's still up and coming. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Megan. I hope that the interested parties get in touch and take advantage of all of the hard work that that you've put into all of this. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for being with me. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation and I will keep you updated. (laughs) Awesome. Thanks, Megan. All right. Thank you so much. Bye. All right. Bye.